you are receiving this transmission, you are reclaiming the faith with Phil Baker on the Fourth Watch Radio Network. Welcome to episode 38 of Reclaiming the Faith, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. I'm your host, Phil Baker. Now let's dig into history. Hey, y'all, thank you so much for taking time to listen to Reclaiming the Faith. Thank you so much for your prayers for me and my family and for my podcasting partners, BDK and Justin Fall of the Fourth Watch Radio Network. We appreciate those prayers so, so much, and we appreciate you listening to the show. Well, this is part two of my interview with Dr. Michael Bennett, a.k.a. Dr. Future. And in this episode, episode 38, Dr. Future takes us back in time as we look at some unfortunate aspects of church history. This is sure to be a challenging listen, so we definitely want to encourage you to hold nothing but Jesus above critique. A major storm hit my neck of the woods during the last couple minutes of the interview, so I want to apologize in advance for the minor technical difficulties that can be heard in that section. Dr. Future was the host of the tremendously influential Future Quake radio show and is the author of both the Two Spies Report blog and the soon-to-be-published Holy War Chronicles, A Spiritual View of the War on Terror. Before we get into the rest of the show notes, I really want to give you all an opportunity to hear a little bit of one of the songs off my EP, and this is the first track off the EP. It's called Right Now, and this is just a short clip, just as a thank you to those of y'all who have been praying for it and contributing to that GoFundMe project. All right, here we go. This is Right Now. Memories are hazy, but wounds they fester on. Waiting game is lazy, this charade is played too long. What if right now, what if right now and not tomorrow Yeah, so we're in that mixing phase of this project, and uh, we've got about two songs down. We got five songs to go in the mixing and then pressing phase, so just keep on praying. It shouldn't be too much longer, and as soon as everything's done, I, for those of y'all who contributed, I'll send out the copy of the EP plus the demo, and if you gave 30, I'll give you the book too. It's all going to go out all at one time, so guys, uh, so thank y'all so much for that support. Well, guys, I just want to tell you all real quick about a podcast that means a lot to me. It's my wife's podcast, Stephanie Baker, and it's called The Faithful Podcast. And you can listen to it on on iTunes at Faithful Podcast or uh, the website is faithfulpodcast.podbean.com. She's got a couple of really good interviews lined up, so you just definitely want to check those out. And if this show is a blessing to you, I really want to encourage you to go to my iTunes channel, Reclaiming the Faith, and leave a uh, leave a review there and a rating. And um, 
Yeah, you can also, if, if my book has been a blessing to you, I want to encourage you to go to Amazon and leave a review and a rating there for my book, New Wineskins and the Simple Words of Christ. If you need to contact me, you can find me at reclaimingthefaith.podbean.com or you can email me at emailphilsbaker at gmail.com. I'm definitely blessed to be a part of Justin Fall's Fourth Watch Radio Network, along with BDK of Omega Frequency, who I do a monthly Q&A show with called Ready With An Answer. If you have any questions about some of the topics that we talk about, uh, please feel free to send us an email, and uh, we will be sure to answer that on Ready With An Answer on Omega Frequency and the Fourth Watch Radio Network. And guys, I want to let you know that Justin Fall has, and his brother Wes Fall, they have a new documentary out called The Belly of the Beast. And I want to encourage y'all to go find that and watch it. It's phenomenal. Hopefully in the next few weeks, I'm going to interview Justin if our schedules can line up. Justin and Wes, and man, it's going to be an awesome, awesome interview as well. Well, the CD, uh, sorry, the early Christian writings that I generally reference here on Reclaiming the Faith can be found on the CD-ROM version of the Anti-Nicene Fathers, which you can find for a mere $5 on the Scroll Publishing website. So please... Make sure to pick one of those up. All right, well, without any further ado, let's get into episode 38, part two of my interview with Dr. Future. I just want people to know I believe in the local church. Uh, I be- just like I believe in Jesus yeah. and the gospel and the resurrection. And no matter what they hear me criticize or whatever, that's the one thing that I want them to know is that I stand in the testimony of Jesus Christ and our risen Lord and in the gospel, and we'll debate everything else. But right now, it's just Jesus in my bucket and nothing else. And everything else has to be critiqued against that. Yeah. And, you know, one of your quotes that you've said on on multiple uh, interviews is that that which we do not critique, we worship. And um, so it's, it's okay. It's healthy to critique the church. I mean, we see that all through Scripture. You know, Paul critiquing the church, Jesus critiquing God's people um, at the time. And, you know, I think uh, on rare occasion, a prophet even did that, too. You know, yeah, I think (laughs) I think so. And so that's okay to critique. Um, You know, Paul says in First Corinthians five, I believe that it's not those outside the church that we're supposed to judge, but rather those inside. And uh, preach it, brother. Hey, you know, so I'd like preach to kind of move into that time, not necessarily a, a judgmental time, but, you know, well, I, didn't, a, I, I didn't want to be so brief on the introduction. No. I hope I gave a very brief uh, three hour introduction. You know, to, I think that's really actually, neat. that that took me longer to give the introduction than actually live it. No. <laughs> you know, I think we can learn a lot of good lessons from what you just said. Like one of those lessons being like, it's, it's awesome how God brings people into our life at just the right time when we need it most. And, you know, we can get really anxious when we're coming up against a problem because we can't see what's on the other side of that. And God has a solution the whole time. And it may look like someone very different than you would expect. Like the African-American man that helped you, like a a guy that was basically like a second father to me after my dad was out of the house when I was 20, 1920 and, and wanted to commit suicide. And, um, God directed me to go back to my church and talk to the youth pastor. There as a new youth pastor. And he was the first African-American minister in my church's history. And that church has been around wow. since the fifties. And yeah. I go and, you know, I had a Confederate flag on the back of my car, like a sticker at the time. Right. And yeah. I go and I talk to this guy and this guy took me under his wing. <laughs> 
he discipled me like a dad. Like it yeah. was incredible. And I mean, he's one of the closest people to me now and changed my views on so many things. It was such right. a formational time in my life. And, and, I, and I bet you you have a mindset that that is what normal Christian living is supposed to be. Right. To be perpetually challenged, not to be smug in the set. And think, all, all I'm here to do is to perpetuate and defend perpetually whatever I grabbed onto when I was, you know, 10 years old and to stick with it. But I, you know, a lot of that is good. Thank goodness a lot of us have been trained into the right things about the gospel at 10. We don't cling to it. Yeah. But we're supposed to still keep growing Yeah. If, if we're mature Christians. If we're mature Christians, and we all would like to think that we are, hmm. if we are, we should be able to be able to stretch and to be able to sift out. And it's like what the Bible says about all things being shaken so that which cannot be shaken remains. Yeah. And we need to be perpetually shaking the stuff that we consider near and dear. And that gets back to what I what I said about that which we do not critique, we worship. Yeah. Because as I understand it, when I made a commitment to Jesus and his teaching, um, that became the state. I no longer critique Jesus. Right. I no longer second guess. Well, now, our actions sometimes suggest that we do. Sure. When we don't follow what he does, we're, we're in, a, in essence critiquing or showing unbelief. Yeah. But, but in essence, what I say, I believe, is that I'm not critiquing him anymore. That's because he's the cornerstone. Yeah. When you lay a cornerstone for a building, you don't go back and reset like, well, did I get the cornerstone right or did I move it right or whatever? Sure. Once you plant that cornerstone, everything's built off of that. Yeah. And so... Uh, when I critique everything else, including you know like the stones that go next to this cornerstone, those are other foundation stones. There's other foundations that go around, but they still have to square against the cornerstone. Hmm. And so I've had a lot of sacred things that are mostly really, really good in my life, like my evangelical upbringing, my Southern Baptist upbringing. I went to a Church of Christ high school, hmm. which also was a very positive experience in the long yeah, haul. Right. Uh, all of these things that were really good to me um, – you know, certain political views or libertarian views or things. There was a lot of good in all of that. Yeah. But ultimately, the only cornerstone's Jesus. And I have to take all of that and, and measure it against it. And, and that requires a process of critiquing. And it's uncomfortable. It steps on our sacred cows, on our toes. But basically, we, we need to just have Jesus in our water and nothing else. And if there's good stuff in our church, our culture, whatever, yeah. it will survive. It yeah. will only be emboldened when we do it. But we need to make it a lifestyle of critiquing these kind of things and getting back to what the real, real fruit is. And I know that has led you to your path historically, hmm. seeing where we've gotten off the rails. And that's led me in the same path, too, yeah. to see historically where— when did we really cling into the faith of the early church, and when didn't we? And it's it's hard. The the history and the midst of times are foggy, yeah. and so it requires a lot of diligence to do it. But every time I critique something within the church, and you know I get a lot of heat on my blog for it, and mm. I've got a lot of heat on online from my radio show, when stuff that's sacred to us and I start asking questions that are uncomfortable, shouldn't be asked, it is intended, just like my books are, which are which are actually much worse in critiquing our culture, evangelical culture. It is all meant as an act of worship of Jesus. Yeah. When I question those things, all I'm just saying is, Jesus, I worship you, and you alone are worthy of praise and honor, and none of this else is. Right. 
Yeah, I mean, that's that's awesome. And, and thinking back, like, historically, it, it seems like a change started to be made around, you know, 313 with the Edict of Milan, not that Constantine made Christianity the religion yeah. of Rome then. You know, that's not until, I think, 380, right, with Theodosius. But, um, right. That, that, that whole century was a transition history, the fourth right. century. Yeah. And then you get Augustine doing his thing. Yep, yep. And so— that was the most momentous century, I think, in the history of the church, of the church age. Yeah, because the church becomes on, on Rome's payroll, you know. Uh, yep. The tax money is going toward building, uh, turn, turning the pagan temples into Christian cathedrals where that never happened before. And, you know, like the preferred bishops are getting some of that tax money, too. And uh, everything changes. Everything changes right. then. And so right. like, I'd like to hear from from your research. Um and some of your discoveries about how the church's historical love of money, power, and prestige has caused us to kind of prostitute ourselves to the state throughout the last okay. 1700 years and, you know, how, you know, they've tried so hard to attain and, and maintain those, those idols and why, I okay. guess. Yeah. Well, well, let me, let me, uh, transition into this by just saying something, sort of jumping the gun, but sure, sure. you know, everybody who really is a, has a thirst for the Lord and disciple. You see a lot of those people take their crack at the book of Revelation, the Bible mm. prophecy, and it's usually their their last stand. It's usually like a, uh, you know, it's definitely where their um, Waterloo is mm. because there's nothing that'll make you look like a fool more <laughs> than to try to sort out Revelation and then see 20 years later how you were totally, you know, imprisoned by your culture at the time. And, right. you know, I mean, I mean, and we laugh over how much we thought the communists were going to be the antichrist, uh, the pope was, and then now the Muslims are the the chic thing, and oh, you know all this. You go back and read like Great Planet Earth, which actually had a very positive experience in my life in many respects. Sure, in reviving. I mean, my brother and I were at a Kmart in 1976, and it was on the shelf at Kmart. Yeah, and he read it through that night. Uh, we were church going people. We were there every Sunday. Uh, he's 12 years older than me, so he was raised a little more late 60s kind of vibe, which mm. rubbed off on me. Yeah. Uh, and then I read it over a couple of days as a 12-year-old right after that. Well, suddenly the Bible became alive. Things are happening today. The European common market, you know, Russia is right. allying with the Arabs to come in against Israel. And and it really revived an interest like God's doing things today. Hmm. And a few years after that, cable showed up in our neck of the woods, and there was a show, a king, The King is Coming, and this guy just did Bible prophecy. So it was like, oh, man, you're finally getting a thirst. He goes, they weren't talking about it at our church. Yeah. And and, and wisely so. Our older pastor knew how you can get you know obsessed with it. Hmm. And so that that is a, a you know, a famous uh, – uh, a time where you get your Waterloo when you start putting stuff on that. But I have sort of my own funky view about Revelation that I plan to write a book about yeah. uh, and take a different angle on things. And it's it's a futurist and historicist kind of view combination. Sure. But but when I look at the four horsemen and the four seals that are opened, yeah, uh, I believe first of all I believe that it actually a tr- trial is going on. Huh. In in uh, heaven uh, amongst a minor Sanhedrin, a cosmic minor Sanhedrin, hmm. and that those seals are indictment seals of the sins of the earth. Hmm. And the first seal that's opened is the one with the rider on the white horse yep. that has a crown put on his head, gold yeah. crown, and he goes forth and it said, "Conquering and to conquer." A bow and no arrows. 
Right, 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 right. And and no sword of the spirit, if you notice. Yeah. And uh, I have a hunch, and I, I'm only going to say my beliefs on prophecy are hunches because I don't want to be a fool and say <laughs> I know it. <laughs> Or at least not a fool for that reason. Yeah. So, so my my speculation, a hypothesis, is that I believe historically what they're showing there is actually that event you're describing, with Constantine becoming the head of the church, mm. and I believe that that anytime you look in scripture, that gold crown is always a, a sign of earthly government. Mm. Consistently, earthly government put on this way. When we see rider on a white horse, many people assume that's Jesus because right, right. it just sounds like Jesus. Right. And I would say, well, you're warm. I would say <laughs> it certainly looks a lot like Jesus yeah. uh, and intentionally so. Hmm. It looks like it's acting on Jesus' behalf. Yeah. But this gold crown and it's going out conquering. But again, there's no there's no sword of the spirit, you know, the Bible is hand. I don't want to get too metaphorical there, but sure. um, sort of conspicuous. Yeah. But, um, I, I, I suspect that, that that is the case. And I'll give you some evidence that's historical evidence that even leads me to think of it more. If you go to the Vatican, and I'm sure you've hung out at the Vatican a lot. <laughs> Only um, my parents. <laughs> I, I actually got to go there, and it was, it was uh, I have to tell you, uh, and, I, and I'm not a big guy trashing this current Pope Francis, but, uh, and I don't go after the Catholics as much as what my heritage does or anything like that. But the experience at the Vatican itself, when I walked through the halls, mm. it made me feel like one of those bordellos of the Old West movies where the <laughs> madams are, because it was all red crushed velvet and all these gaudy gold fixtures and everything. And they had priceless paintings laid on top of each other. Yeah. And I thought it was very unbecoming of all of those saints over the years and monks and people who lived in burlap like St. Francis and others. Right. Why would they have something like this there? And no wonder when Francis went there, the Pope had, was having those nightmares hmm. about really the church sitting on the back of guys like St. Francis, you know, instead hmm. of what was there. Yeah. And, you know, came down and kissed his feet, hmm. his bare feet. But anyway, uh, at, at the Vatican, I, I get a little bit off on a tangent, you may have noticed. <laughs> but anyway, it is, there's a special section that goes into the papal residence. And there's a stairway that goes up, and they call it the Scala Regia. Hmm. And it's the way scale. I think it means like the stairs for the kings. Okay? okay, the reason it was set up was that when newly coronated kings, during the time when the Catholic Church still had pretty much a say over who got what and you know who ran what, they would go there to get the blessing of the church hmm. over earthly governments, yeah. and the the church would bless them and make it official. And they went up these stairs. At the base of the stairs is a statue, I think, was it Michelangelo? I forget who the guy made it, anyway. Uh, it was one of the sculptors, actually. And it is a rider on a white horse. And that rider on a white horse actually has a gold crown on his head, hmm. and it's Constantine. Yeah. And he points he points uh, to a sign in a window by him that represents what the sign he saw in the sky, where it says, by this sign, conquer. conquer. Yeah. Now... Maybe that's a fluke, but I can't imagine that there's not a potential connection there with with a rider on a white horse or the gold thing saying, you know, you know, go conquering and to conquer. Yeah. And to see this merging of the state and uh, the state and the church. Yeah. And um, so going back to even going back before the Constantine, what led up to it. Sure. Um, I think to be fair for you and I to be, we're on the same page on this. 
that there was something horrible that happened then. In the short term, it looked like it was the best thing in the world. Hey, persecution's yeah. over, although we know it had one brief revival. I think they Julian thought, the apostate. didn't they think like the millennium, they were in the millennial <laughs> reign? Well, yeah. Oh, oh, can you imagine today if World Net Daily or Raiders News Update or whatever had seen that, they would say, Jesus is around the corner tomorrow. Yeah, right. This is the sign of his return. Yeah. Uh, but um, the uh, to be fair, problems in the church just didn't start no, in no, that no. era. Right. I mean, all you, all you have to do is just read the epistles. Right. And they had major, major problems. And their first problem was the problem we have in evangelical churches today, which is Judaizing. Hmm. The Judaizers, which were trying to put us under the yoke of the law and the rabbis, right. was a big thing. I mean, the whole books like Book of Galatians were dedicated just to that problem. Right. It seduced even Peter. It seduced Barnabas. Hmm. And and Paul fought a lonely fight. And now you've got, in, in fact, a lot of the Hebraic Roots Center is here in Nashville. And they released a DVD called Let, uh, Let the Lion Roar that talks about how basically Paul stole the church. And the reformers and everybody else were all charlatans because it was meant to be just a branch of Judaism. So they fought that. On the other end of the spectrum, Gnosticism yeah. was really a big deal. They had to fight. And, and then they just had bickering and fighting, and they let all sorts of blatant immorality go on in the church. Mm. So they had their hands full with problems. Yeah. It was like whack-a-mole with, with Paul trying to solve all these problems in these churches he planted. Right. And so it went on. But if you go back to Fox's Book of Martyrs, mm-hmm. you go back, and, and I, one of my volumes of the 15 so far that I have drafted and written is a history of Christianity. Yeah. And it's it's almost a 1,000 pages, so I'm going to divide it into two books. Hmm. Uh, but I finally took the time to go really look for what are signs of where we started falling into our old holy war uh, tendencies. Hmm. And even in the Book of Martyrs, you can find out that while Christians were of excellent report uh, in the, the early centuries when they were persecuted in the early years, right. in fact, a lot of people don't know, we picture all of Rome, everybody who was Roman was after the Christians. They were always persecuting them. And that was not the case. Right. You had a few crazy emperors like Domitian and some other ones that sort of lost their head sure. and for some reason has stupid reasons to persecute Christians. But the, the but the average Roman citizens liked the Christians. Yeah. And when the book of Acts says that they were good report with the people, they actually protected them. Just like many Christians uh, protected Jews and hid them in World War II. Sure. There were good pagan Romans that hid and protected Christians. Yeah. The, the biggest danger in the early centuries for the Christians like that is when the Jews would throw them out of the synagogue. Right. Because in the synagogue, they had some protection because the Jews had been so cantankerous for centuries. First, it was to the Babylonians and then the Persians, the Greeks and the Romans, where they were just constantly having insurrections. That the Romans had a provision where if you were part of a synagogue in Jewish faith, you didn't have to go put your incense before you know, before the Caesar hmm. and because they would just, you know, cause all sorts of insurrections and stuff. Yeah. And so when the Christians were meeting with the Jews as just a sect of Judaism, they had some cover because they remember the synagogue. Hmm. So when you read in the book of Acts, when they were thrown out of the synagogue, that was a death sentence. Yeah, right. Because then you had to go actually either pinch your incense before Caesar or be killed. Yeah. And so 
th- those guys were doing that at different instances, but the but the Roman, the pagans, people protected them and liked them. What ruined that was when they started getting some money. Hmm. And reading some of the ancient church fathers, it's hard to sort some of this out. But what, what I'm gathered as a, I'm, and I'm not a uh, academic or historian, I'm a lay person, but the, the impression I get is part of what got Rome to be a little bit more influential than the other churches was that they were very wealthy mm. and they had very wealthy members. Yep. And they started having a disproportionate effect on the other churches mm. because of just the members were wealthy people. Right. And so they, you know, with wealth becomes clout. Mm. And so they started having more of a say where things that were going on and that got more and more of the case. But what happens when you read in Book of Martyrs is they started building church buildings. Hmm. These were probably pretty humble initially, right? but then they got to be more ornate. And when they quote the early church fathers, they say that people got to be more skeptical of them when money got to be more of an important thing. Right. Before they were meeting in catacombs or they were meeting in people's homes, and there might even be a wealthy person in town that was a patron that actually had a house big enough for them to all assemble. Yeah, gutted maybe like 75 people or so. Right, right. That'd be like a big group, you yeah. know. But but basically, they were made, a lot of them were slaves. A lot of them were people from other ethnicities, Africans or whatever. It was a motley crew right. that met together, and the people loved them. The, the world, you know, by and large doesn't necessarily hate Christians because they're Christians. We know the world is at enmity with our teaching. We, mm. we already know that. Yeah. But most of the criticism we get is self-inflicted. Right. When we are ugly, when we hate people, when we think we're better than other people, we deserve the criticism we get. Mm. But I can tell you, even today, when people act really, really hateful toward people who are the stranger or the poor or you know the vulnerable or whatever way, and they act like well they don't deserve to be around us or in our country or have any kind of accommodation. When, you know when when people don't like that and see it distasteful, when people who are non Christians are more moral than we are, and they speak up about it, it's not it that's not Christian persecution in the Bible sense. Right. That that's just you know that's just being a pain in the neck and a bully and a bore. Hmm. And that's that's what that is. And so they started getting more focused on those kind of things and having their own clout even before Constantine showed up. And that started a deterioration. And going from, you know, the house church kind of environment or something similar to that to, you know, having these big ornate things and showing that you had more power. If you go back and read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you'll read that these people warned about this. Hmm. And so that set the table for, uh, you know, and then they were having disagreements. I think probably allowing a hierarchy to start to develop where you had these bishops set up in different places. Right. Um, I understand there has to be order, and there's a lot of people with crazy thoughts, and you try to keep uniformity. But but I confess to your listeners, I am a, currently in my thinking now theologically, I'm much more a product of the radical reformers. Hmm. Uh, the... And by radical reformers, I mean the Anabaptist, right. ba- early Baptist, yeah. Mennonite kind of thing, yep. uh, because they were hated by both the Catholics and the Protestants. Oh, yeah. In like the uh, the beginnings of the American Revolution, right? Uh, the Mennonites got some pretty bad treatment by the Protestant Christians. 
Right, right. Yep. And uh, you see, I, I was never taught any of this stuff. I didn't go to to Christian college. I was in high school, but not Christian college, university or seminary. And I don't even know how much of that's covered at those. It probably depends upon your major. But um, I had to educate myself on mm. this. Yeah. And what I found out is that the only times that the Protestants and the Catholics stopped killing each other and fighting over who was the prince in charge of a region was they would stop and unite to kill the radical reformers who didn't fight anybody. Right. You know, and they would give them what they called the third baptism, mm. which, you know, they got their first baptism when they were one of those other sects originally at birth. And then they became Baptist or something akin to that and real, believed in believer's baptism yeah. for, for people who actually made a professional faith. Yeah. And they thought, well, hey, you like baptism so much, we'll give you a third one. So they <laughs> took them all down the river and they didn't let them up out of the water. Right. And or they, so our pre- they tarred and feathered them also. Sure, sure. And so that's, you know— when you know the Catholics and the Protestants are both giving it to you, yeah. either either one you're a cult and a flake, or you're onto something. One yeah. of the two, right. and I believe those guys were right. So if somebody wants to put a label on me religiously like that, I, I try to resist that. But if I would, I'd probably say a Paleo Baptist, <laughs> you know, a a really really old school Baptist, which yeah. looks nothing like no. the Baptist of today that I was raised with. But they were our predecessors, and they don't love war. They don't. They don't get real patriotic. They're not mm-hmm. really excited about pushing USA or Germany first or whatever. Um, they they um, did not try to control people with the ballot box. Mm-hmm. Um, they met their obligations as a citizen, but um, you know all that kind of stuff people see as a threat. Yeah. If you're trying to just do the kingdom of heaven business, well, that's a threat to them. Right. And and so, um, you know, that, that stuff came later. But, and also it's a very decentralized kind of thing. It actually believes in church leadership by the Holy Spirit. Hmm. And so the risk of that is that you, you can't risk, if it gets too decentralized, you get sort of a wild west. Yeah. Where you got a bunch of crazy people believing crazy things and little sex, and you got a charismatic person or demagogue carry off people. And the other op extreme is you got this more Episcopal kind of, you know, thing where you've got all the archbishops and super archbishops and most reverend down. And so you've got an autocratic control hmm. or, or, or semi-anarchy. And I have to tell you, if I had to pick one of those two extremes, I would pick the Wild West. Hmm. Because not, this, not that I'm denying that there are risks with it, but, but at least anybody who gets up that gets off the rails is minimizing the damage they can do. Right. They're not. They're not doing it from a throne somewhere, right? And percolating it down and institutionalizing it. And I can tell you, the 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 people I call the cosmic rebels, from Satan down to the third of the angels who rebelled with him, or the sons of God who came sure. down in Genesis six, whoever those crowd of people are, who are against us, they love hierarchical structures. Right. They they like it when you're in a hierarchy because what they'll do is they'll target the rudder of the ship. Hmm. And the bigger the ship, they put all their energies on that rudder because they know everybody else is going to go in the direction of them. Hmm. And uh, that's why I believe that a the church was meant to act in a subversive fashion hmm. and inconspicuously. It, it was to act in a way – I'm going to say something that sounds heretical here, okay? But uh, they need to act more like the, the all of the mythology that we had in the Cold War about the Comintern or Communist International – that worked quietly internationally behind the scenes and hmm. nobody knew who they were right. uh, below ground. Nobody gathered down here or whatever like that, you know, and it was, everybody suspected everybody. 
but they didn't go out and walk down the thing and say, I am a communist and, and I want to take the rights of everybody away down Main Street. Right. You know, supposedly they were quietly behind the scenes. Yeah. And I will tell you that when we build huge institutions in the church and we have televangelists and major denominational figures and leaders up front representing us in the media and in the public, we are putting bullseyes on all those institutions and people mm. for, for basically you got the cosmic rebels and then they have their ground operations, which I think the Bible calls Babylon. Mm. And they use Babylon. Babylon is very hierarchical in structure. And you know, yeah. in, in the enemies, they have the archons and they have the uh, principalities and powers. And, mm-hmm. you know, everybody terrorizes the group below them and then they're terrified by the group above them. Yeah. You know, they're all, that's the way that operates. And then we try to emulate their, their society rather than Jesus, who has a group of people that he calls friends. And that's how he operates the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. But and under that structure, if they can see that we operate, operate like Babylon and get that hierarchical structure, they will take a leader and they'll, they have several successful techniques. They will try to uh, seduce them hmm. and get them to seduce them with their whatever their fleshly weakness is or money. Uh, or if that doesn't work, they'll flatter them. They'll flatter them and they'll give an elevated sense of ego and they'll use the congregants to help raise their ego. They can become participants. And if that doesn't work, then they'll just use uh, uh, fear tactics and intimidation. Hmm. If you don't do what we want, then who knows what's going to happen to your family. Hmm. And they'll do it through the mouthpieces of maybe people anonymously they don't even know. Hmm. Like this old church I went to. It, you know, They actually sent letters to the pastor anonymous and said, if you, if you don't move that rocking chair back to where it belongs on the nursery in 72 hours, it's or else. Yeah. So on all sorts of scales, they have all these techniques when we set somebody as a figurehead for us. Yeah. Now, if, if we're a, sort of an invisible network web, subversely working inconspicuously, where we don't run the Institute for Moral Purity or, you know, we are the so-and-so for whatever, and then it turns out those people are messing around with girls or whatever like that, you know. It's happened over and over again. Yeah. But if we're operating quietly and humbly as a network web, of people just dealing on small circles with people, there aren't enough resources for the enemy to combat all of us. Hmm. They can't target all of us if we all do a little piece, you know, without getting any credit, without getting any kind of big institution behind us, and we're just sitting there and doing the work of the kingdom, spreading the gospel, doing the Great Commission, helping needs that are there, acting like the way the kingdom of heaven is going to operate eternally. They, they can't address that. But no, we want to look like Babylon and set up the institution. So all this stuff, all this leadership that's set up in the church over time, I think you were just asking for it. Hmm. And there is a revival today, even in the charismatic church, and I talk about it in the sect of people that are reviving a, a crusader group within the church right now. And this gets into my research and my book series. Yeah. Part of the the religious background they're giving to this crusader group, and some of them are some well-known televangelists involved. Yeah, they have actually sort of coronated themselves as archbishops, and they're wearing the little biter hat and things. These are yep. these are evangelical students, right. and what they're trying to claim is is apostolic succession. Right. They show that some apostle all the way down coronated them and got them down to where they were. That somehow endorses everything they say and do must be right. And, and while I certainly believe in Scripture, they laid on the hands and the right. apostles endorsed certain guys and the church fathers did that, that's not no immunity 
for bad apples and bad thinking to get into the church. Right. It's still going to happen. So I say all this to say there, there was some rotten core that set the table for when Constantine came along. Yeah. But, but what it did was it solidified it and calcified it virtually for good once he came along and says, okay, I have a political reason. I have to unite the Roman Empire. We've got all these different religions. It's, it's breaking people culturally. We want to make Christian Christianity the religion to, to unify the empire politically. And the next thing we have to do is to make sure Christianity is only in one variety. Hmm. And so we got to get rid of the people who have a slight nuanced difference within it. Yeah. And that's what the Council of Nicaea was. Yeah. People will look at the positive side. Well, okay, it preserved what we believe is classical Christianity and their beliefs. But I don't know. What I was led, and this this is maybe heretical, but when I was reading the the church fathers and what happened in that era, there the, the church was a lot larger um, and and more broadly experienced and in fellowship with each other until then. Right. But what happened was the the issues they were wrestling with was like exactly how is the perfect work of how the Holy Spirit and the Son relate to the Father. Right. Let's define this like a scientist. Let's get it exactly right. What is the relationship of the three? Yeah, the whole homoousius. Who came out of who, who emanated from what. And, And if somebody phrases it slightly differently, well, then let's anathematize those people and throw them out of the church. Right. Now, they still believe Jesus rose from the dead, that their sins were forgiven by him, that he was sinless, sent by God, that he's worthy of worship. They believe all that. But they're asking a question on who emanated out of who or, or whatever. So, therefore, we're going to anathematize and send them in outer darkness while they're doing these things. And so all these people fell by the wayside. You know, maybe some of them were too far on things. But what kind of trend did that set? Because they were doing Constantine's bidding. He was the one that wanted to do it. And you take a guy like Athanasius, the bishop, one of the most famous early church bishops. I think, if I remember right, he was either brought in to be a senior bishop, a theological bishop, or anathematized and sent out into the desert a total of like eight times. Hmm. Where either he was like he was the devil— or he was the guy writing the code for everybody. Right. Eight times. Now, what kind of stability does that portray about the church and about a Holy Spirit-led church when that kind of chaos is going on? Yeah. I mean, that sounds more like a banana republic than it does a an eternal kingdom. Sure. That's that's moving forward. So all all of that kind of quality control stuff that was done with all that leadership, there may have been a few good things that they did along the way, but there was a lot of problems that they brought in. And that's why I understand the radical reformers when they went back and said, let's just get back to the scripture in a clean sheet and let's not first look at an org chart to set up. Let's just all like pray and listen to the Holy Spirit and start sharing with each other. Hmm. And uh, I have a newfound appreciation because I had to go do my own study on this kind of stuff. But but things really, I believe, started getting off the rails um, during between and Theodosius was as bad or worse than Constantine. Right. Constantine was still a pagan. Right. Yes. He still worshipped Saul Invictus. Yep. Yeah. He 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 was double minded. Yeah. You know, he was no role model. You know, thank goodness that we Christians today in America don't look at other guys as our Cyruses or role models today that are really <laughs> pagan living. Right. We know better than that now. Sure. Heaven forbid we'd be double minded. Yeah. But but then you got Augustine coming along. 
And I know Augustine is one of the favorites in your seminaries and other places. Oh, man, that guy. You know, probably yeah. the only guy aside from Paul, the most influential. You know, yeah, yeah. I'd really, I'd really like to say Jesus was the most influential in our faith, and that really depends upon who you talk to. I think. Yeah. But, um, but Augustine, in my view, and again, I've not studied him exhaustively enough to be an expert on him, but I'm, I'm left with the impression that he left behind what I believe was the worst beliefs of both the Catholics and the Reformers. Mm. Whatever the parts that I really reject of either one of them, with, with probably some exceptions, is what you know what I see both of them. Yeah. So I think all of us Christians ought to go back and really start, first of all, looking at the Scripture and seeing what we believe. But what's hard is we've had preachers talk in our ear and TV, TV and radio preachers, and so they're automatically pre-chewing in our brain even when we read Scripture. Yeah. Stuff we heard decades ago. Yeah. Well, when you read something out of the Bible, okay, well, that meant this. What the apostle meant to say was this, or the or Jesus really meant to say was this. And we don't even know what's going on. Yeah, I mean, like— Because somebody did that for us before in our formative years. That's right. Like, when I was in—when I was at HBU for my undergrad, we were basically taught to see uh, Paul through the lens of Calvin— um, right. But right. Calvin was seeing the scripture through Augustine and so was Luther, you know, he has played such a heavy role on influencing it, both of those guys. And, right. Right. And, exactly. And Paul, and we know if we were in Calvin's Geneva, most of us oh, would end up being pilloried in the stocks if we were right. lucky. That's right. If we were lucky, that's how well he would think about our attempts to try to follow what we think he is. Right. We wouldn't meet his standard either because some of us don't have names after Old Testament figures, which is one of his demands hmm. in his city is that you had to name your children after Old Testament figures and basically live the Old Testament law. Yeah, well, and if you criticized his messages, he may kill you, you know, just for criticizing him. Right, right. And we know the first person he would have uh, burned at the stake after that Michael Severus guy right. would have been the Apostle Paul. <laughs> right. Because Paul and him wouldn't have gotten along very well, and Paul would have rubbed him the wrong way, and Paul wouldn't have kept his mouth shut, and the next thing, he would have probably gotten beaten with rods another time, the fourth time. Yeah. I mean, Calvin had so much power, you know, so much notoriety, and gosh. But he, but, but he made Geneva great again. <laughs> yes, he did. He did. It's, you know, it's famous. He, he, he conquered the seven mountains of Geneva. Right. And that's why everybody was so happy there and so thrilled to live there and not under a reign of terror. Right. You know, afraid that, that the elders that he sent out as roving patrols that looked inside people's windows to, to see if they were playing cards or something like that, you know, and, and drug out the streets. That's why everybody was so excited to live there was because, uh, you know, he, he made it a Christian nation. I mean, even the 1920s Klan would have been as happy as how he had— he had raised Christian warriors in a Christian nation. Mm. Well, how, how do you see some of that same type of dynamic unfolding in America, like throughout its its history? Oh, that's so hard to see. I can't see that we would have made any errors <laughs> like that in America. Yeah. Heaven, heaven forbid, because we're a city shining on the hill, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. As the Puritans, who the that's people right. we look at in our, in our Disney-fied view of America that we're taught, you know, yeah. mostly in our pulpits— uh, but when we when we we see that view, the the Puritans were basically they believed they were setting up a new Jerusalem. Yep. yep. And now it's become vogue through David Barton 
and the guys before him that that, in fact, is what they did hmm. until we lost our way and let liberals come in or, you know, human rights to mess up everything. Sure. You know, and and the, these wonderful Puritans who were the city shining on the hill, they were the guys who enjoyed swinging us Baptists from the gallows. Yep. They'd go hang us right next to the uh, Quakers. Hmm. And and the great sins that they were trying to purge from America to keep us holy and pure were things like believer's baptism. Those were some of the cardinal sins that they had to go put a stop to. Yeah. And, you know, that's why I like a guy like Roger Williams, one of the handful of heroes in my, I guess I'm at 5,500 pages so far hmm. in my book volumes. One of the few heroes is Roger Williams. Yeah. Who was a Puritan. And, you know, the Puritans left England because they thought they were getting persecuted by the Anglicans. Right. And so they thought if you can't beat them, join them. So we'll go somewhere else so we can go persecute somebody else. Right. And, you know, we've learned what it feels like to be persecuted, and we'd much rather be the persecutors. So they went to the New World, and he was a Puritan hmm. uh, for some good reasons, for some good reasons that they didn't get into all of the— uh, you know, Babylonish kind of environment of government and religion like the Anglicans did. Right. So he came over, I believe, in good faith. But the problem was he taught too much out of the Bible. Hmm. And that rubbed the Puritans wrong. And he acted like Jesus, which was very conspicuous. And Roger Williams actually went and talked to the Indians. Heaven forbid. Which we all know as a good Calvinist, those have to be the uh, unelect, that they're just, bit, you know, they're BTUs for the hellfire. Right. You know, that's their only purpose is fuel oil for the fuel fire. Yeah. And uh, so he bothered to go share the gospel with them. And he did something even more heretical. He listened to the Indians. Hmm. When they talked about the great spirit and that they had been prophesied one who had a son coming, he listened to them just like Paul listened to what the Greeks were saying there in Athens and you know, he remarked on their unknown God, and he said, here, let me tell you more about the unknown God. And, you know, Paul said, you know, you guys are really a religious people. Hmm. And he even quoted their pagan philosophers and said something that he thought was true that they said. Sure. Which, which you know, would get him thrown out of the national religious broadcasters today. Right. He, he would not be allowed on Christian radio stations for having made any of those observances. And uh, Roger Williams was the same way. He actually listened to the Indians— and then he would share with them what he knew about uh, this great white God that they'd heard prophesied and that he'd let them know some more about it. But then what he did was he, he didn't even stop at that. He actually cared about their well-being, hmm. which is something else that's low on a priority list for us Bible Belt people. He actually went, went back to England and represented them before the crown to say that, you know, if you're going to take their land away, at least pay them for their land. Hmm. Don't just outright steal it. Yeah. You know, if you're if you're going to do it, just sell their you know they're human beings. Sure. And so that the Puritans hated him for those kind of things. It doesn't fit well with manifest destiny. No, 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 not at all. And you know, a lot of people don't realize, like the the head of Massachusetts Bay Colony, he wrote, and it's been preserved. And I quote from it. He commemorated the fact that they found out when the Pequot Indians who were lived in their region, uh, when the when the men left, the men warriors left to go somewhere. They went in and found all the old people and the women and children inside their little fort, the Pequot, and the Puritans walled it up and set it on fire right. and immolated all of them. And that was when we they had a proclaimed day of Thanksgiving. Hmm. 
And so they had an official day of Thanksgiving, like when we think of Thanksgiving back in that era. Yeah. That was for immolating the Pequot women and children. And they said that when the smell of their burning flesh was like a sweet savor before God's throne. So this this is the religious, uh, this is the Christian heritage right. that we look back with such fondness on. Yeah. And in the midst of that, Roger Williams is just trying to teach the Bible. Hmm. He's got a huge following because people have a thirst to hear about the Sermon on the Mount and about Jesus and these things. Well, that earned him the, the rancor of, the, uh, of the, the Puritans. So they got the bright idea to drive him out, exile him out into the snow to die. Hmm. A minister of the gospel, yeah, one of their fellow Puritans, to go out and die. Well, thank goodness these pagan, uh, you know, horrible uh, minions of hell, the Indians, went out and saved him, hmm. saved this believer, uh, saved his life out in the snow, and he left far away and and decided to find found a little region where people who uh, believed in religious freedom. Hmm without a state religion, which is what the Puritans imposed, yeah. where you could actually come and follow your own conscience of faith. Yeah. And so he allowed people like himself, disaffected Puritans, Baptists came, uh, Jews came, Catholics, Muslims came. Hmm. And you know what? They all got along okay. Yeah. They all settled there. They actually had conversations about God. They found out, they compared notes and found a lot of things weren't as different as they had been led to believe by their leaders. They went and talked, helped each other, tried to survive the brutal winters because they, you know, they didn't have any resources. Indians were there with them and helped out. And so all these people lived, and that became what we now know as the state of Rhode Island. Yeah, yeah. That was founded by Roger Williams. He founded the first Baptist church in America hmm. and was absolutely hated by the religious establishment. And that was a bulwark for years. Not only do the, the history of the separation of church and state there, which, which our Bible Belt Christians have told us is a, a message of Satan. And this message of Satan came from our Baptist founders. Right. And they got it from the apostles and Jesus. Yeah. And that no man can serve two masters. And when Jesus said... Uh, you know, my kingdom is not of this earth. If it were, my, my disciples would fight for it. Um, if, if you want to blame somebody for the separation of church and state, well, then just go tell Jesus how much he missed the mark. Yeah. And let, and let him know that. But uh, anyway, they kept slavery outside of Rhode Island for a long, long, long time until more of the Puritans moved in. Hmm. And they brought their these wonderful, pious... Uh, you know, holier than thou, Puritans brought their slavery with them and finally brought slavery in after a long time. Yeah. But the legacy of Roger Williams was there. And his, uh, he had major debates in writing. I suggest your listeners go look up. And uh, he talks about the, the bloody, uh, what was it, the bloody tenant of, is it martyrdom? I know, I just blanked out. Just go look up Roger Williams and read anything he wrote. And he actually went, went against the cotton mathers and the, mm. the heads of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. They had major debates yeah. about whether faith could be forced at the end of a gun barrel or right. by a law or statute. Yeah. And uh, Roger says that that never makes real faith at all. It never makes a genuine faith when you do that. Right. And, you know, most of our religious right people today and the uh, um, most of our Bible Belt culture would find Roger Williams a radical, liberal socialist, uh, even though he is really the founder of our movement. 
Yeah. And uh, I believe he's greatly received in heaven, but just not in our culture. And uh, so hopefully I didn't say anything that will rub anybody the wrong way in your listenership. No, no. (laughs) I think that's good. And I mean, you're talking about two masters. You got that whole slave trade going on, you know, with the, the rum trade and the tobacco trade. And I mean, there's just so much corruption in America's early formative years that has well, kind of you know, spread we, on. One error that we have in our Disney-fied view of our American history uh, is that all oh, Christians back then, by and large, were all Bible-believing Christians. And that was when we were really pious before this, the 60s, and we had these radical professors come, and you know, or the monkey scopes trial or whatever came. And it, it turns out, in the early days, a very small percentage of the public were even professing Christians hmm. of America. Right. Most of them never went to church. They were over here to make money. Hmm. They were in, in the selling pelts, trading with the Indians, finding stuff that was selling the new world. Yeah. They didn't care about religion. Right. And in fact, they didn't really think very highly of the Puritans. Hmm. They knew they were some of the most brutal people. You know, these Puritans, these really pious people that we read these wonderful prayers they have and things. You know, they loved to find a woman that they thought was... Uh, like I remember one of them, I can't remember her name was Hathaway, I forget what it was. But anyway, they would do things like teaching adult baptism. And so what they these these wonderful Puritans would do is that they would take them in the city square in front of everybody and strip them to the waist, naked to the waist, so everybody could just look on them, hmm. topless. Wow. And somehow they thought that was something spiritual. Hmm. And I'm sure they got their, you know, they got their thrills out of that. But of course they look very pious though. You know, they were sitting in the front row of church, and they were in good standing, but they had their little darkness, but their power allowed them to, and who was going to speak up against them? Yeah. You know, nobody wanted to be the next person they did that to. Right. So this was their piety. You know, even a guy like Jonathan Edwards, who we all venerate, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Sure. Um, which is really a picture of really old covenant, like the fire on the mountain of the Old Testament, you know, right. th- that really emphasizes the transcendence of God Sure, for us to be terrified like at the foot of Mount Sinai, yeah. where, whereas in the New Testament, the New Covenant, we see the eminence of God or Emmanuel, God with us, where you actually have Jesus sitting down and washing feet hmm. of his followers and calling him his friends. Yeah. But but Jonathan Edwards really emphasized that. He he was going to terrify people to be scared enough of God to do what's right. Right. And, you know, but he didn't have any problem owning his own slaves. Right. This wonderful Jonathan Edwards had so much to teach us about what Jesus was really about. Um, but he had slaves. And part of what really influenced me, you see, a lot of this is post-future quake. Hmm. You know, I'm, I'm still in learning mode right now. And, and that's why I want to encourage people to do research and start writing. Because you, you've always heard the adage that you don't know a subject until you teach it. Right. You know, when you have to go teach something, substitute teacher, do something, it's like, oh, I really had to learn it because I had to instruct it with somebody. The same thing is in this procedure with me. I didn't know anything about Christian history, really, until I had to start doing at least a cursory investigation to be able to write on it. Hmm. And how did holy wars happen? How did we have battles based on faith? And then I start finding all this, this dirty stuff in it. And, and none of this is intended to besmirch the gospel, right. the teaching of Jesus or the apostles. All that is more solid with me than it ever was. What it really shows me is all this stuff that's baggage, that I, my accumulated heritage, that's not part of it. Hmm. And how did I let that stuff, you know, it's like putting a few drops of sewage in a bottle of clear water. Hmm. 
you could say, well, it's just a few drops of sewage. What's the big deal? Sure. Well, the problem is it's sewage. Yeah. And when you start finding the stuff in it, the, 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 the answer is not to say, well, I'm just going to throw up my hands on my faith. It's all a sham. That's, that's completely in error. The thing is to say, no, the, the faith given by the apostles from Christ is the real thing. Yeah. And why is that not adequate? Why, why do we have all this other cultural kind of stuff that runs counter uh, to it? And, and we have allowed strangers tell us otherwise. And uh, you know, I'm not telling anybody to believe what I say. Go do your own research and pray about it, yeah. and read scripture, and and just challenge yourself. Yeah. I don't I don't want anybody to take my word for it, but uh, I, I you know I can see a legacy. I'll give you a case in point about slavery. Yeah. Okay. Um, I found a document that I write about in my book on Christianity and its holy wars from around, I think 1840. And it was a document that the head of the South Carolina Southern Baptist Convention wrote to the governor of South Carolina at his request, at the request of the governor. The governor evidently had asked him whether slavery was okay or not for Christians. And he wanted to get a good, solid Baptist answer to it. Right. Now, we don't know the motive of the, of the governor. Was he really wanting to know the answer to do it, or is he just wanting cover? Yeah. All we have is the response back. But in this response back, it looks like a classic document of any kind of Baptist document you would have read of the last three decades, you know, for the convention or resolutions or Baptist faith and message. Very, very similar feel, Hmm. scripture focused, scripture centered. And this head of the Southern Baptist Convention there writes about slavery in the Bible. And he makes a very compelling argument that slavery was okay that Jews slaved people of other nations in the Old Testament. God didn't criticize them. Christians had slaves in the New Testament. We know about Philemon and Onesimus, and that God didn't condemn and that he didn't tell anybody to release their slaves. And they draw the conclusion that it was fine. And then he gives some very practical arguments of the fact that, you know these African tribes are all warring against each other. And so the only thing you're getting slaves of are the ones that the winning ones sold of the losing ones. So it could easily be reversed. So these guys aren't literally white that you're getting. And plus, when we bring them over here, we have a chance to set them in a church and convert them. So he gave practical good reasons to feel good about slavery. Yeah. Well, you know, when I read that, I have to emphasize that he used Scripture to make his arguments while slavery is okay. Mm-hmm. And being a sola scriptura kind of guy like I was raised, uh, not wanting to follow every kind of wind of doctrine, yeah. but stick with Scripture. I, I, ha- I have to tell you, I had a little bit of a, a crisis of faith. Not a crisis of faith of like, do I believe in Jesus or not? A crisis of faith of my culture of faith. Yeah. Well, he did sola scriptura, and he said slavery is okay. Well, then how come my conscience feels so bad about it? Hmm. How come my conscience tells me that this still is wrong? Yeah, well, it's not loving your neighbor as yourself, and that's pretty basic. Yeah, or the, yeah, the golden rule. Yeah, the, the royal law, as is also called in scripture, right. uh, amongst amongst several other things. And um, so, I have to say, well, if, if he follows scripture to say slavery is okay, but my conscience is bad, are there? A, does the Bible say that there are additional witnesses to God's will in addition to scripture? Not supplanting it or not being in contradiction, but in addition. Yeah. And when I find scripture, I find that being a sola scriptura guy, I look at scripture and I find that that is true. 
that we actually have the Holy Spirit for a reason. Yeah. The Holy Spirit is not redundant. The Holy Spirit, if 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 like a true Calvinist or many of our you know fundamentalists today would say, every single minutia in there is completely ironclad and clearly defined in the Scripture as we have it, then really we put the Holy Spirit out of work. Hmm. They, there's nothing really the Holy Spirit for us to, to do to enlighten us if that's already that clear cut. Uh, or, or to tell us where to go. Secondly, the Bible clearly says that there also the Lord gave us a conscience, hmm. saying our conscience bearing witness to these things. It's that that phrase is used at various times. Yeah. That our conscience bearing witness is also an important witness to what we're understanding Scripture is telling us. Hmm. So when our conscience is violated by something in Scripture, it better give us pause. And having grown up as a lifelong, what I would consider conservative, religiously, as well as biblically, hmm. I don't know biblically what all that means. I, I just believe the teaching you know, of Christ and gospel and the prophets, Ephesians 2 kind of stuff. I guess that would make me conservative biblically. Hmm. But whatever label you put up, that's what I am. Yeah. But I realize those same scriptures says that God gave us a conscience for a reason. And that's why when... The whole issue of, say, for example, meat sacrifice to idols. In Old Testament, Old Covenant, Mosaic law would be either you do it or you don't do it. You don't care what's going on around you. What anybody else is doing is irrelevant to what you do under the Old Testament law. Mm -hmm. It's a very fundamentalist, literalist thing. Either it's okay to do it or not. A New Covenant way of doing it as Paul showed in, in his scripture about meat sacrificed to idols, he says, it matters on what's going on around you. Hmm. It ma- You're not just responsible for yourself. It's not a selfish faith. Well, thou shalt or thou shalt not. And whether somebody's offended or not offended is irrelevant. Well, in the new covenant, it matters who's watching. Hmm. You know, he had, a, he had a fine conscience eating meat sacrificed to idols. He, he, he knew that these were not, these are idols of stone. But he knew that there were brethren who would be weakened by what it was. And if they were around, he wouldn't do it. Hmm. But if he was with a bunch of Gentiles and they wanted to have a conversation about his faith and he had meat and he suspected it was to idols and it was just them, he would receive it gladly. Hmm. But if he had a, a weaker brother that was not as mature and would feel tremendous guilt over it, he didn't want to ruin their conscience by eating it. So basically what I believe God has asked us to do in the New Covenant is to grow up. Hmm. To grow up and to take on the mind of Christ. You know, Jesus was at liberty to just just about anything. Heal on the Sabbath, take food on the Sabbath or whatever. But he was mindful of the crowd that he was around and what was going on. And, and he says, be like me and care about these kind of things. Hmm. And so... It, we would like to be so neat and tie things up into a bow. And if you're going to do that, you might as well just follow the Mosaic law. Because the Mosaic law, well, even then they had to bring Pharisees along to say how, how many yards you could carry a grape on the Sabbath. Sure. But they got it down there so you didn't have to do any thinking. You just uh, you just did this and you were, you know, you were good. And, and sometimes our sacramental uh, parts of Christendom uh, almost do that same thing. When you come here and you do these certain sacraments and you're good to go. And I don't think that was ever intended how Jesus had set up our faith. And so what happened was in the times of the, um, you know, before the Civil War, 
is you had these Christians, and many of these Christians were what we would call liberal Christians. Because they would say, even though you said, well, Scripture said that slavery is okay, there are additional things. We're, we're growing up beyond this. We're growing up beyond this state. Hmm. I guess you could call them progressives, okay? Sure. Christian progressives. The Holy Spirit intended us to grow out of things like slavery. Right. And I would say, in hindsight, now that time that was considered really liberal and radical, and these people weren't being faithful to Scripture. And in hindsight, I would bet over 95% of your audience would say, of course they were right. Of course that wasn't appropriate for us to enslave our, our brothers. Sure. But at the time, they were the ungodly liberals in the church that were just messing up Christendom hmm. because they, they were bold enough to, to obey their conscience. And, and that gets to be kind of scary. But, but I, I have been led seeing Christian history over time that, that you, you go to this thing where people think either there ought to be like an autocrat, dictatorial, old school king style like you had in the Catholic Church or in the Orthodox Church today where you have a hierarchy that goes all the way to the top and this autocrat dictates what everything's supposed to be. Hmm. And by, by the uh, you know, apostolic uh, uh, chain that they're going to keep quality control to make sure only their, their men – decide everything on down through the list. You know, there's no fresh word other than they, they groom someone who's one of their men that, that perpetuate how they run things. Yeah. Th- then you've got the Calvinists come along, and they're more like the, the totalitarian ideology organization, sort of like the communist would be. They're not set up on an individual person. They're set up on a totalitarian ideology. So you got Calvin writing just like, uh, you know, uh, um, Lenin writing his, you know, dictate or Chairman Mao's book, Red Book. You know, you you've got Calvin's principles, the institutes of the faith that become a totalitarian ideology yeah. that everyone has to bow to. Not scripture, but but Calvin's basically his Talmud that he wrote on it. Like lifeway curriculum. Uh, well, it's it's the same <laughs> legacy, the same I'm legacy. Sorry. Yeah, right. The same mindset and thinking. Yeah, and so. That becomes, that's where you really owe your allegiance is to the ideology. Yeah. And people think you have to pick one or the other. I have been led to believe, having my, my cursory through through Christian history, is that God intended, he uses these examples of shepherds as an example of what he is. You know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Hmm. All these shepherding pictures for a reason. And that's because the Lord likes to operate, his leadership style is like a shepherd. And he wants under shepherds with him as chief shepherd. But a shepherd, you think how a shepherd operates. A shepherd does not, he is not a control freak hmm. who actually goes and takes every sheep and get, grabs every one of their feet and points them in a certain direction. And then goes and points every sheep and moves them every few feet in that direction, controls it. From a sheep's perspective down there, when a sheep's in a flock, it almost looks like chaos. Hmm. They don't see anybody leading them. They just see them bumping into each other, and you got sheep going all directions and bumping. And by somehow they don't detect, somehow they move in a general direction. Hmm. They get led to pasture or to fresh water or whatever, but they don't even detect it. You know, they're not getting beat a lot with the staff, or they're not getting forced, you know, any kind of thing. Yeah. Um, they don't maybe not even know the shepherd's there most of the time. The only time you see the shepherd intervene is when a when a wolf comes up. Or if a sheep starts to get close to a ledge, then then the shepherd will intervene. 
And when I see the mess of the church about the, just one era, the era of slavery, probably the biggest culture issue we ever had to deal with on, on cultural holy war. Yeah. It was it, – it, God just didn't show up one day and tell everybody, this is the way it is and you're wrong. He let Christians slug it out for 100 years or more and call each other names and a lot of sleepless nights and they wrestled with each other and just a lot of animosity and a lot of other mess, you know. Hmm. And after 100 years, now in hindsight, we look back and we think, how could we have done that? But but during then, that was a major thing they were stressed over. And everybody thought the other one was the heretic. And so I just happened to think that because leaders are so fallen, even Christian leaders succumb to the flesh, hmm. institutions are so easily swayed and taken, that this really, really messy way of shepherding, where, where like these shows like right now, what we're doing, we're talking about really difficult stuff that can divide us and cause us a lot of angst that somehow this is the way the Holy Spirit finds us. In fact, this age, the safest for, way for us to work this stuff out. Hmm. No matter how messy it is, until we get our, until we have the complete renewing of our mind, until we're completely sanctified, including in our flesh, in our, you know, our new robe of flesh, until that time, it's going to be a mess, a little bit of a mess. So, and it's going to have to take us persuading and iron sharpening iron. And you know what happens when iron sharpens iron? There's lots of sparks. Yeah. For sure. So, uh, as we're kind of wrapping this this interview up, um, oh, I thought we were still in the introduction. I thought we were getting into the main idea. <laughs> Man, maybe we can do another call sometime in the in the near future. That'd be pretty cool. Well, first of all, your listeners may have been totally bored by this discussion. I don't think so. And and they may think it's just pure heresy. So I wouldn't <laughs> jump so much to think there'll be acclamations. If <laughs> I tell you what, listeners, uh, if you really don't like it. Just make some little effigies of Dr. Future and burn them on a pole and send them to my brother here, and then he'll know probably not to have me back. <laughs> That'd uh, be a nice creative way to do it. Uh, somehow I can't see that happening. but uh, the, the great Satan. Yeah. We'll just have that up there. So, yeah, if you think it's always – I don't want to offend everybody up there. I assume your people who are listening are either A, people who really do love Jesus – and I really want to do what's right. Are yeah. there people who are curious that came along and would like to see somebody genuine that really Jesus? And by some miracle, they don't look at all of the mean-spirited Christian people out there and have somehow nobly looked beyond that to see if maybe there's something genuine to Jesus. Yeah. So I respect both of those people in your audience, and I hope they don't throw me under the bus yet and know that sometimes I, I just say things in the wrong way, but I mean well. Yeah, yeah, and, for sure. And I love goodness. I love Jesus. I love uh, people who are kind to other people, people that look out for vulnerable people, the stuff that our conscience knows that's right. And uh, if they are like that with me, then maybe they'll put up with me stumbling through some of this hard stuff, and we'll we'll all figure out stuff together. Well, if, if you could give them one piece of advice— uh, our listeners, maybe one piece of advice for like lay Christians and one for leaders um, in terms of really starting to challenge their presuppositions um, and seeking things out along that journey. What would that like one piece of advice be for both laity well, and, and leaders? Can you give me license to make it two? Yeah. yeah okay. There's, there's two. Yeah. Uh, the first thing is don't carry anything in your bucket except Jesus. And and to do that, like I've said, 
that which we do not critique, we worship. Yeah. And you have to decide, do you want to just worship Jesus or do you want to worship Jesus plus? Hmm. And by the plus, I don't mean like evil stuff. I mean the stuff that we have all treasured is wonderful things that have blessed our life and have been heritage. Yeah. But that doesn't mean they still don't need to be critiqued. Yeah. We may have had wonderful church experience in our churches. I sure have. Uh, our certain favorite pastors that we've heard, either locally or on the media, or some other thing like that that we've had, or maybe it's just like the what we have as our favorite history of our nation that makes us feel warm inside. All that stuff has to be scrubbed. Yeah. And I think Ephesians 2 is a good picture for us. Uh, and it, it clicked with me one Wednesday night when my preacher was talking about Ephesians 2, when Paul taught about the household of faith, about the household of faith has walls broken down on it, interior walls. Mm. The wall of separation between Jew and Gentile, it says, were broken down, and it was built by ordinances or by ordinances of the law. It was a wall of separation. And I know Christians are really big into building walls these days, <laughs> but but the Bible's not into it. Right. The, the new kingdom is not into it. And the only walls that had any kind of good in the Bible were in the New Jerusalem, and they have gates that are wide open 24-7. They're like Waffle House. <laughs> they never close, okay? So there's nobody's kept out. There's, there's no National Guard at the, at the gates of the New Jerusalem, okay? It's not the way God rolls, okay? But the, the interior walls were knocked out. But it says, most importantly, the foundation, the foundation of the household of God, Ephesians 2, it says it was built on the, the uh, prophets and the apostles hmm. with Christ, the chief cornerstone. Yeah. And if you want to start the process of doing this, looking what's in your bucket that you've been carrying around just like I have been carrying around, and to test what's in there, what, you know, do some trace elements, get your litmus paper in there, find out what's in there, hmm. is that go back to Ephesians 2, look at the teachings of the of the prophets and these are foundations of doctrine yeah. okay for the kingdom of heaven that we're part of now and the apostles the 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 uh, prophets came anticipating Jesus so that they were a witness of legitimacy for Jesus mm-hmm. what they said hundreds of years before Jesus Jesus said was a testimony of why he was legit yeah and then on the other side of Jesus and his teaching were the apostles who reflected in the decades afterward and said, this is what the gospel said about Jesus. He even said more to us, and here's the implications for us as followers of him in the kingdom of heaven of what he said. That's our foundation. But even what they said can only be understood in light of Jesus as the chief cornerstone. Hmm. So when you go back and read the Sermon on the Mount, you read the teachings of Jesus— during his three, three and a half years. Yeah. Everything that you read in the apostles and everything you have to read in the prophets have to be interpreted in light of what Jesus said, hmm. both ways. Yeah. It's not like, well, but they said this. No, you got them wrong if it's not in line with what Jesus said. And there's, you know, there's a lot more in the Bible that's not listed in that list. Hmm. That, that's sort of disturbing. The law is not written there. The, the, the uh, Torah, uh, Pentateuch, is not listed in that list of the foundation. Hmm. The, the books of history of the Bible are not listed in that foundation. The wisdom literature is not in it. That doesn't mean that God doesn't use those books to inspire us, uh, provide us some spiritual insights. Sure. But the what I listed were what Paul says, God says, is the, the foundations of doctrine 
for us to set our doctrine based upon. So I just suggest people do that. Uh, the other thing that I would tell them, when you go through and you're trying to sort through, maybe you're reading a million books, you're trying to read, you know, you're trying to be good and diversify who you're listening to, and as a mature Christian, trying to challenge out and test out what you believe. Always remember this. I finally hit on this other thought. You know, because what you're reading in books, they're, you know, make sure they lay out facts and evidence. But still, when they're going to interpret the significance of it, they're giving you an opinion. Hmm. And, and another adage I've come up with is that an opinion says as much about the opiner as it does its subject. So when you're reading stuff or when you're listening on TV or you're listening on Christian radio or the radio, remember when somebody's giving you opinion and hopefully they have some facts and evidence to back it up. But the significance of it is really saying as much about where they're at as who they're talking about. Hmm. So never forget that. And that has to be anything that I say on here. Right. You know, I, I let you know in, in gross detail sort of the path where the Lord's taken me. And I've, I've been blessed, a blessed life. Tremendous role model, cloud of witnesses around me of what true legitimate faith is. But I'm still a product of my path. And so when I read something, in fact, I ask you to just cut slack on me. If I'm too extreme on something or, you know, I really get worked up over something, I'm being unfair about somebody. Well, just remember, this is sort of the path I've taken and maybe why I sort of feel this way. Mm-hmm. And also take that into perspective. Yeah. I, I certainly know I'm not the last word on anything or nor you or anybody else. Uh, but it helps you to actually understand more and then to distill out something useful if you realize, okay, this person had a path. They have a reason why they feel this way. Hmm. It still may be not, it may be wrong or they may have been distorted because of it, uh, but I can at least understand why they do. Yeah. And I also can make sure I don't misunderstand what it is, or I can take a piece of what they have and somebody who had a different experience but, but rightly understood their experience and put them together into something that makes some coherent sense hmm. for yourself. And ultimately, your own thoughts are a factor of where you've come from in your experience, including a lot of us that have had a wonderful Bible Belt experience. Right. Just remember, we're looking through a lens. Somebody who hasn't come through that doesn't mean like they hate Jesus because they didn't sing a hymn the way we did. Um, they have an experience. They have a reason why they got to where they did. And let's just be enlightened and distill out the best of everything we get a hold of. And hang on to what can't be shaken. That's great, man. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and thank you for taking the time to, to do this podcast. Um, man, it's been, it's been so good. Uh, I know I didn't put this in our like pre-production um, prep stuff, but uh, would you mind praying for the, the listeners? Well, I guess if I have to, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not big on that, but I guess if anything else, we'll ask for the God's direction. I mean, you had doctor's futures, but if all else fails, we'll ask the Holy Spirit to lead us. So <laughs> tongue in cheek, uh, actually that should be everything we do. And in fact, I, I have to apologize to you. We should have prayed him before we started this interview. And, uh, I was probably clowning around too much to do that, but anything we do, the Lord should take charge of it. And I hope maybe in arrears, since he's a master of time and space, that that's he it. can do that in this interview. But I'm going to pray for every one of your wonderful listeners out there, too, if that's okay. Yeah, thank you so much. Heavenly Father, uh, I come as just a fellow believer and a nobody, along with everybody else in your audience and my brother here, who has uh, been willing to share his valuable relationships with these people here and to risk them with some crazy guy like me coming here. 
And uh, I pray that that doesn't bring him any harm of his standing with his listeners, Lord. And uh, whether they be in his church or other people who uh, he has an important influence on or, or his listeners spread out all over the globe, Lord, I just pray that, that uh, this experience would have been a stepping stone and not a stumbling block to them becoming closer to you, Lord, in trusting you. And, um, uh, Lord, I don't want anything to get in their way. I pray for a hedge of protection around every one of these listeners, that, that wolves that would come out and even not distracted by phones that are ringing, <laughs> that uh, a hedge of protection would protect them from wolves and sheep's clothing, and they would also protect their own spirits from um, feelings of indignance or arrogance or looking down at other people who are different than them uh, that would be just as spiritual harming as wolves on the outside. And Lord, we have our own Trojan horse inside the walls of our own hearts of um, thinking we're better than other people, of um, uh, Lord, looking down at people from different cultures or people who've even had a different expression of how they come to know you. Um, Lord, protect us from all of those corrosive influences. Hmm. Our own flesh, our own desire for um, uh, our own, our own, our own desire for um, our own preservation, or to make our egos feel good. I protect, please protect us from that, Lord. Um, I just pray that uh, you would allow wisdom to come in and show us that we are a brother's keeper, Lord. Please just show us that we. Uh, um, are responsible, not just for ourselves, that we're not to hunker down, even though maybe some of our Bible prophecy teaching or whatever it might be, religious, would cause us to want to go find our bunker or cave to go down in there and just wait until you judge all these evil people. Hmm. Let us not have the sin of Jonah, where we just sit outside and just will sit out in the heat just because we want the enjoyment of, of seeing you relent and judge these people. Uh, let us learn from your example in that book to not be like that, Lord. Hmm. And um, we just pray that we would take personal responsibility for the welfare of the vulnerable around us and the stranger and the poor. Everything that, that you told us and your son told us and those who followed you told us. Lord, I just pray that that would be front burner on us hmm. to remember that some of these culture issues we fight were not the things that you said, your own son said, were the weightier matters of the law that the weightier matters of the law were things like justice and mercy. And help us to deal with that. Even those of us who've been raised in a sola scriptura, uh, very literalist phase where we just can't imagine that there could be such a thing as weightier matters of the law. Mm. And so we spend all of our time fighting over the splinters in our eyes. Lord, let's, let's see the front burner stuff that you have about how we expand the kingdom by being like the Good Samaritan and loving the people, even who they were a different faith, a different culture, they're laying down on the ground. Even the holier than thou, so they're laying down on the ground like this Jew hmm. that was laying on the roadside. Let us bind up and not let's see what we get out of it, or even just the, the glory of saying, I told you so. Hmm. But let us take responsibility for our neighbors and the people who, who maybe haven't even had the fortitude to pick themselves up by their own bootstraps hmm. and that are just pitiful. Let's just let's just care about them because we are spiritually pitiful ourselves. We're we're beggars spiritually. Every one of us who've even been in church or time the doors are open, we're 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 pitiful ourselves. So just have mercy on our souls, and help us to have mercy on their souls. I bless this uh, this show. I, I believe my brother here is doing a good work, um, and I, he's much more eloquent and better 
prepared and can do much better work through his own work here on, on the show. I pray you continue to bless and bless his listeners, help them progress. I pray for peace upon the lives of everyone who listens. I pray for a rest of spirit. I pray for their rest only to be taken when there's business that they need to do to condense out stuff that is corrosive and doesn't need to be in any of our hearts. Lord, I just pray that they'd work through that and re-enter their rest again that you want to give us while we labor, labor in the fields. So I, I just pray blessings. And these are spiritually hazardous days. The, 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 your church, its reputation public is getting a black eye. I believe these days, Lord, they're not even thinking about their public decisions and how it's affecting the Great Commission. That's not even coming up on the radar. Lord, I just pray that you would uh, preserve those who really care about it and that you would help uh, help them to persevere and not be dismayed and to just take their energies and put it to work. So, Lord, I'll just bring this to a close and I'll continue to keep them in prayer. Ask them to keep me in prayer. Help me to finish the work that I feel like you've had me to do. Uh, that we wouldn't be distracted by earthly things. And uh, just pray for my brother here doing the show and just bless him for risking to have somebody like me on here. And uh, we ask this all in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for us and set us free. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. So busy talking all my life. So hard to hear you speak So tired of falling Like I'm blind But I think that now I see I've seen it all by now Everything that shines soon fades Capture my thinking when I bow Like a substitute could save Pass me by